God. Chapter 6, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Uh, This is God's word, brothers and sisters in Christ. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John, and uh, we come to another very popular story here about Jesus walking upon the water. And when we look at this story, however, to whatever degree of, of carefulness, it certainly tells us something about Jesus, right? That uh, he is the Lord of all creation, and he has such control over all of the elements of nature that he can make water into something that can be walked upon, which indeed is miraculous and has a lot of implications uh, concerning his person uh, and his work, which indeed uh, we'll get to some of them tonight. But this story also has something to say about the disciples uh, as well, and through them, Uh, It comes to our very doorstep uh, right now. It has something to say about literally anybody who claims the name of Christ as their own, not the least of which is that we need to be with Jesus. If you get nothing else out uh, out of the sermon this evening, it's that we need to be with Jesus. We need to be with Jesus, and we need him to be with us because the world is filled with sin and all of its effects. And even though we in 2022 uh, were very good at putting some sort of a veneer over sin to make it look not like sin, but to make it look like something that is good, nevertheless, sin and its effects are still with us. They are still present with us, and they are still actively seeking to destroy us. And if you don't think that they are, then the sinfulness of this world has successfully deceived you and blinded you, and you're the very one who's being driven and tossed by the sinfulness of the world so much so that you can't even recognize it. And we need Jesus to come to us to undo both sin and its effects, and if he doesn't do this, it's to our peril. If Jesus does not come and rescue us, Uh, from the bondage of sin, from the consequences of sin, we will remain in our sin, and it is to our peril that we do not invite him, that he does not come to us. It's really a story also about the frailty uh, and and, and really the, the futility of human exertion to do this, meaning that there's nothing that we can do to remove the effects of sin in the fallen world. And Jesus does this in the midst of our chaos and in the midst of the turbulence, in the middle of our sin and misery. And so we're going to be studying this passage tonight with this theme that's written in your bulletin. When Jesus walks upon the water, he shows us that he is able to use the chaos of the world as a platform for his very ministry. When Jesus walks on water, he shows us that he is able to use the chaos of this world as a platform for his ministry. Because really, this miracle that Jesus does in, working, in walking on the water is, if nothing else, an exemplar of the totality of his ministry. 
almost like what we've seen in the multiplying the loaves and fish and you know, just a, a, a few verses before as a, an example of the totality of his ministry, you can very easily say the exact same thing that's going on tonight. So he uses the, the chaos of the world as the platform for his ministry. We're going to be considering the setting of the sign, the performing of the sign, and the meaning of the sign. And for the setting of the sign, uh, we can firstly uh, consider the proximity of this sign in relation to the sign that just came before this in the multiplying of loaves and fish. Uh, many of the commentators uh, will put these two uh, signs, these two events together, almost like two halves of the same story. In that sign, if you remember, in that sign, in the, uh, multiplying the loaves and the fish, Jesus feeds thousands of people who come to him to hear him teach uh, what he's teaching and to, to, to see him do miracles, perhaps that they want to see him heal someone or multiple, multiple many people there. Now, if you remember, these people who were there, they weren't starving, and so there's not an immediacy, there's not a, an immediate sense of peril and danger. In this sign, right now, we see verse 16. Uh, we start by seeing the disciples go down to the sea. Uh, verse 17, they get into a boat, and then they started across to the uh, the, the seed of Capernaum. And this sign uh, before, it was late afternoon, and now in this current sign, in the sign in verse 17, it says, it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. In other words, the disciples expected Jesus uh, to come to them, but he hadn't just yet, uh, so they figured they'd meet him at the place where they're going. So they get out onto the sea. So related to the sign that uh, comes before this, we can see that Jesus provides for people who come to him in their want, that is, they lack something. And what does Jesus do? Uh, he provides that something to them and so that they can find in Christ their satisfaction. Well, here in this sign, uh, the disciples go from him and they don't know the chaos that awaits them out on the water. They go from him and they eventually find Christ not just as their satisfaction, but as their very deliverance from death itself, their very rescue. So Jesus is here related to the sign before it, also represented as the one who satisfies and also delivers from death. Onto another part of the setting, the Sea of Galilee. Now the features of the land around the Sea of Galilee make it uh, to be somewhat ordinary for the sea itself to become rather dangerous, rather hazardous for small boats like doubtless the one that they're in. Whenever I describe the Sea of Galilee, I usually describe the Sea of Galilee as a bowl of cereal uh, that's shoved about a foot or so into the sand. That's basically what it is. The Sea of Galilee is about six or 700 feet below sea level, and there's mountains uh, all around the east and west and north side of the Sea of Galilee reaching up to about 2,000 feet above sea level. Now, these features make the water to be turbulent when the cool air from the mountains meets the warm air from the water below. And so, verse 18, when verse 18 says what it does, that the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing, it wasn't something that was out of the ordinary. Now, but normally you would think to yourself, all right, we, we, we know what to do in this, uh, in this situation. Of course, we, we, we would chalk it up to 
is uh, what Paul would say is that the natural man, right, he perceives not the things of, of, of God. The normal uh, man would, uh, would, would normally think, oh, that's okay. Some of the disciples were fishermen, so they know what to do, right? So they start rowing. Uh, look at verse 19, though. Notice that it doesn't say that they were three to four miles across the sea. It says that they had rowed three to four miles. In other words, them being tossed around so much uh, is such that their efforts could very well have been kind of a one step forward, two steps back sort of thing. Now they're in the middle of the uh, lake. Again, we think of the futility of human exertion uh, to, to, to get out of, uh, of the problem that we're in. Basic human nature. We can do everything in our power to the saving of our souls, but where is it going to end us up? It's going to end us up in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the turmoil, so dark that even Calvin says, doubtless, that their, their navigational abilities are taken away from them. That's where it's going to end us up, right? It's going to land us in the dark, with no anchor of our soul, as the book of Hebrews uh, will say. This is what, uh, what uh, uh, becomes of everyone who seeks to do anything in their power to the saving of their souls. There's never going to be actual progress until Jesus is in the boat. Never. There's never going to be any actual progress. So for the setting of the sign, we have its relationship to the previous sign, some of the formal differences of the sign. Uh, the location, the time of day, uh, the present need, the fact that human exertion in this sign is applied, uh, whereas before, human exertion was not applied. In this uh, sign right here, human exertion is applied uh, to get out of the dilemma that they're in. And now we move on to the performing of the sign, uh, which really is as impressive as it is straightforward. Uh, verse 19 when they had rowed about three to four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat. So here he is walking on the water. It's dark, pitch black. Uh, he's walking on the water in the darkness in the middle of a storm. The wind and the waves are all around him. And as we've said before, this shows that Jesus is the Lord of nature. He is the Lord of nature. He can make water into something that can be walked upon. This is one of the main reasons why the Gospel of John was written in the first place. To display the divinity of Christ in no uncertain terms. And if we couldn't grasp that from all of the signs that we've seen before, you know, think of the, the, the signs that, uh, that we've seen before. Uh, changing water into wine. Healing the official's son. Uh, think of uh, healing of the paralytic, the, the, the multiplying of the loaves and fish. If we couldn't grasp the, the, the fact that Jesus is actually of divine origins from all of those other signs, in my mind, this is the one that settles the matter conclusively. All the other signs, in other words, that Jesus did could conceivably have some sort of rebuttal to them. You could sort of envision someone saying something to doubt the validity or the reality of those other signs, but in my mind, there's no possibility that someone can argue anything else than that this action shows that this is the one who sustains all creation itself. Now walking on the water to his disciples. And it's, it, it's just an amazing action that it is impossible to deny now that Jesus is who he says he is. Now, that certainly won't stop uh, the skeptics. Uh, 
uh, from saying what they will. That certainly won't stop the deniers, what I usually like to call the intellectual uh, elite, who want to try to neutralize this passage and say that this didn't actually happen. Jesus didn't really walk on uh, the water like you think that, uh, that he did. Uh, one thing that they'll say is that verse 19 is mistranslated. It doesn't say in the Greek that, uh, that Jesus walked on the sea. Rather, it should be translated that he walked around the sea, or, or, or he walked around the perimeter of the sea. How about this, that he walked on the seashore? This is one of the things that they'll say. Uh, now, I, I don't know really how this uh, squares with the disciples being afraid. You know, if you've ever gone boating and you've uh, been in the middle of the lake, you don't act in terror when you see someone walking on the seashore. Um, that's just not something that, uh, that happens, right? Uh, nor would this kind of explain the fact that they invited Jesus into the boat with them, right? Because if the sea is as turbulent as it is, what are you going to want to do? You're going to want to get out of the boat and go on the seashore with Jesus and leave the boat there, right? So it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't really square that, uh, that much kind of falls flat when you question it. Uh, I heard another, uh, another thing that uh, um, skeptics will say about this. Uh, a few years ago, actually plenty of years ago, I came across this interpretation that when Jesus walked on the water, get this, he wasn't actually walking on the water, he was actually walking on ice. Yeah. On ice. Right. Okay. Which, in my mind, it's a lot more of a miracle that the disciples can row through three to four miles of solid ice <laughs> than for a guy to walk on the ice. Um, so, I mean, that, that's just me, though. Uh, but you can see that the, the, the unbelieving world has a veneer of properness to it a respectability, a supernatural denying respectability about it that wants to rob Jesus of his prerogatives of deity. They want to rob Jesus of his ability to do things like walking on the water. Now, if you're sitting there um, thinking to yourself, well, uh, Pastor, I don't really uh, struggle with, uh, with that. I don't struggle with robbing Jesus of his uh, divine prerogatives. Uh, I'd invite you to do some soul-searching to... Uh, take inventory of every time that you're tempted to stay in bed on church day. Uh, that is no less robbing Jesus of his divine prerogatives than these skeptics and these deniers uh, would on any day. The Bible says that these are the ones who are tossed about by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Ephesians 4 the natural man's heart is hostile towards the things of Christ, and if anything, this just proves that we need Jesus all the more. We need Jesus all the more. Uh, but we confess in line with the scriptures that Jesus is the Lord of creation. And here he takes his divine prerogatives in walking on water. He rules over the elements of the world, uh, even the ones that would otherwise pose a threat to us, and he has the ability to make use of those elements at his disposal so that what, what, would, what would normally swallow up any other person can be the platform upon which he walks so that he can come to the disciples in their peril. 
In verse 19, they react much the way that anyone would. It says that they were frightened. The other Gospels say that they were frightened because they they thought that they saw an apparition. They thought they saw a ghost. But Jesus said to them, It is I, in the original language, literally it says, I am, um, uh, which which is uh, clearly the name of God in the Old Testament. Uh, Then he says, do not be afraid. This is the only time in the Gospel of John where this command is given, despite this very command being the most frequent command in all of the Bible. Do not be afraid. In verse 21, they were glad to take him into the boat, which means that the disciples found in Jesus the comfort of comforts. Uh, They found in him that he is the one who can guide them. He could be their pilot. Uh, He, as I'd mentioned before, can be the anchor of their very soul. They saw that he was greater than the things that threatened their very lives. And so they received him into the boat, and verse 21 ends by yet giving us uh, yet another miracle, saying, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Uh, The performing of this sign was an impressive event, for sure, Uh, one that clearly displays the divinity of Christ, Uh, one that shows the disciples and us as well where our real rescue is to be found and that Christ is going to bring you to your intended destination in the end. Now, this sign has a lot of implications, uh, lots of meanings to this sign. There's about eight of them that I've, uh, uh, I've, I've conjured up and come, uh, come to uh, the conclusion of from the study of the passage. I'll only give uh, to you just a few for our last point this evening, but we'll move on now to our uh, last point, the meaning of the sign. When we come to the meaning of the sign, we can consider it exactly as it is. It is a sign. Notice uh, I've been kind of restraining, refraining from the use of the word miracle, although I have used it a couple of times. Uh, the Bible, specifically the Gospel of John, knows it as a sign. Uh, in previous sermons, I've explained that the signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John correspond in some way to the signs of Moses in the Exodus event from Egypt. And so we firstly find a similarity to this as the time when the Israelites go through the waters of the Red Sea. Uh, Both events occur at night. Both events have the immediacy of impending doom upon the people. In both events, the people of God were terrified by that doom. In both events, the people were told not to be afraid. And in both events, the name of God was declared to the people of God for their very rescue. For Israel, the water stood up as a wall on their right hand and on their left. For the Egyptians, it was their ceiling. And now for Jesus, the Lord of creation, it is the ground upon which he walks. Israel was allowed to walk to the other side, and Jesus, the disciples, were immediately brought to the other side. So firstly, we see that there's a clear meaning in this, that Jesus is bringing about a new exodus in his person. And it's not merely just an exodus from Pharaoh, Uh, one little sad little king on a sad little hill. Uh, It's a new exodus from what Galatians 1 verse 4 says, this present evil age. It's a new exodus from all the powers of the world, all the powers of the devil, uh, all the powers of the flesh, all the powers of hell combined that he delivers us from. Jesus is bringing about a new exodus. Secondly, Jesus is fulfilling an expectation that is only reserved for God himself. 
Jesus is fulfilling an expectation that is only reserved for God himself. It's another way of saying that if you know your Old Testament, you know that Jesus is here acting in a manner that only God is expected to act. We've already seen how this relates to God in, uh, in, in verse 20. Uh, it is I, means I am. Uh, but listen to how the other, some other passages in the Old Testament speak of God. Job 9, verse 8, refers to God as the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Psalm 77, verse 16, says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Uh, which becomes an interesting interplay as to the interpretation of the disciples being afraid, right? Indeed, the deep trembled. Continuing on to verse 19 of Psalm 77, it says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Psalm 107 uh, recounts the testimonies of the people of God who are redeemed by the Lord, and they come in to Jerusalem from various places and conditions to praise and worship him. Verse 23 says, Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. Then down to verse 28 of Psalm 107. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Uh, now, there's many more examples that we can see of this, but the Gospel of John speaks in no uncertain terms. Jesus is fulfilling an expectation that is only reserved for God himself. That's because he is God. He is the word made flesh, as we've seen, and he's dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, that is, he has made his glory visible. And one of the many ways in the Gospel of John in which he has made his glory visible is by walking on water, fulfilling every expectation, or at least this very expectation that was reserved for God himself. Thirdly, this sign recalls and looks forward to a world without sin or its effects. The sign recalls and looks forward to a world without sin or, or, or its effects. One of the curses of the fall was Genesis 3, verse 18, that thorns and thistles shall grow for you. Thorns and thistles shall the ground grow for you. This is a depiction of a general, a greater, a greater and more, uh, more abstract general theme that now nature itself would rise up against fallen man. And so the death that nature now signals would then loom over humanity until sin is finally dealt with. So this being the case, we can see in this miracle a microcosm of what Jesus will do to end sin and how he will go about doing it. He walks upon the turbulent waters, and in doing so, he bends the elements of nature to himself, to his own redemptive purposes. In other words, what Jesus does is he uses what happens in the fallen world to make an end of the fallenness of the world. He acts within the world that's tossed about by sin, and he's even, in, in about a year or so, he's even going to uh, suffer one of the, the, the greatest, actually the greatest of the fallen world's consequences, 
in order to make an end of sin and its consequences. He takes an element of fallen nature, he uses it to eradicate the fallenness of nature. This is exactly what he's going to do in his death and in his resurrection. He'll undergo the greatest uh, that the fallen world could ever possibly throw at him. And in so doing, he is going to make things not just like they were before sin, but he's going to make them better. So in walking on the water, he recalls and looks forward to a world that is without sin and without its effects. And lastly, fourthly, this sign tells us what the church should be like. This sign tells us what the church should be like. Uh, Because of this story, the church throughout its history has been depicted as a boat as it endures through the torrents of the world, the flesh and the devil. Uh, Even some theologians in the 200s AD put the picture of a boat on their signet rings to symbolize the church being with Jesus amidst the chaos of the sinful world. Uh, Later on in Christian history, the architecture of the church would commemorate the use of a boat as the image of the church by referring to the central place where Christians gather to worship within the church as the nave, from which we get the word naval or navy, uh, meaning someone who travels upon the water. In other words, if you're in the church, when you're in the church, you're in the boat with Jesus. When you're in the church, you're in the boat with Jesus. And so we find ourselves situated in a place where the waves and the wind has grown strong. Uh, the, The torrent is all around us, and yet we have Jesus in the boat with us. And the only thing that's left is for us to reach our destination. And so the waves and the wind can do what it will, meaning that persecutions will come. That's promise. Hard times and hardships uh, will come. But as long as we have Jesus with us to comfort us, we can endure and we can be made to endure. He will preserve us to the end. So this shows us what the church should be like. So we've seen that when Jesus walks upon the water, he shows us that he's able to use the chaos of the world as the platform of his very ministry. We've seen this in the setting, the, uh, the performing, and the meaning of the sign. I'm going to close with a couple of applications this evening. Uh, Firstly, brothers and sisters, I want you to prioritize the church as your lifeboat in this age. Uh, The church should be your lifeboat. Prioritize the church as your very lifeboat in this age. If the church can be depicted as a boat, particularly taken from this passage right here, then we're able to draw some applications of the Christian life. Notice that in this boat there are no passengers. There's only crewmen. In this boat, there are no passengers. There are only crewmen. The church of Christ is not supposed to be filled with onlookers. We are to be members of one another. So if you are a member of this church or another church where the gospel is present, it is expected of you to be a part of the crew. This is what this passage is teaching. It is expected of you to be part of the crew and not merely a spectator. So get involved with the church. Prioritize its worship. Prioritize its service. Uh, enjoy its worship. Enjoy its, 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 its work. Enjoy the priorities that this, uh, this church offers. Yes, it'll tire you out. Uh, yes, it, it's going to be hard on your schedule. But it's necessary to your growth and grace. Without Jesus and his church, 
All attempts to oversee your own spiritual vitality will end in either chaos or destruction. We need Jesus at the helm. We need him at the helm, or we're going to be tossed around by any wave or wind of doctrine. So prioritize the church as your lifeboat in this age. Number two, be glad to take Jesus into your chaos. Be glad to receive Jesus into your chaos. We see the disciples doing this in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the original audience of the Gospel of John was a persecuted community. As a matter of fact, the author himself, John the Apostle, uh, was persecuted by exile. He was uh, thrown off to a pile of rocks in the, uh, in the Aegean Sea, uh, known as the island of Patmos. There he writes the book of Revelation. Uh, around the same time that the Gospel of John was written, I believe, another uh, book uh, was written called the book of Hebrews. And that has persecution as its very backdrop. And these people, these are people who relied upon Jesus in their chaos, in their persecution, through their chaos. Now we know from Matthew chapter 14, verse 30, that when Jesus enters on the scene, the chaos doesn't stop, uh, meaning that there will still be persecutions uh, in this life. This life will still throw troubles at you. When it did stop is when Jesus got into the boat. In other words, when we have our eyes fixed upon Christ, when we have our eyes fixed upon Jesus just right, when we invite him into the chaos, uh, I guess instead of trying to, to, to make it calm for Jesus beforehand, right? If when we invite him into our chaos, it really does contextualize the world around us and the worries of this age, the cares of this life begin to become a lot smoother, I say this for two reasons. Number one, nothing is truly chaotic to Jesus. Uh, nothing is chaotic to Jesus. Uh, there is nothing in this world or in any world, for, for that matter, that is outside of his control. Secondly, because what's promised to us in glory is right now given to us in seed form. This is why heaven, in Revelation 4, verse 6, is described to have a sea of glass like crystal before the throne. In other words, we can translate this image here uh, to us. Heaven does not tremble so much as one centimeter when the worst of our troubles, when the worst of our worries, when the worst of our anxieties come to our very feet. There's an election in a couple of days. Uh, Wisconsin is a swing state, is it not? A uh, lot of trepidation. Heaven does not tremble so much as a centimeter over the affairs of men. And this peace belongs to you who are in Christ Jesus even now. Even now. So what chaos can you invite Jesus into? It is proper for you to invite the Lord Jesus into your very chaos. He has more than enough ability to handle it. He is God. He has, an, he has omnipotent shoulders. So what chaos can you properly invite Jesus into. He loves to provide for his own, to come to us, to strengthen us, to guide us, and to bless us, and to lead us to our destination. Be glad to take Jesus into your chaos. Let's pray.